Welcome to the Memoirs of Abiding podcast. I'm Chris Bryant. We wanted to start something a little different and counter to what many have been taught or learned through experience. Our topics will be practical and theological, focusing on what the early church saw. What we are going to talk about isn't some new idea, but rather an old idea gaining traction again. Our tell is sharing our experiences and looking at the Bible in this material. Our ask is that you will take it in your own devotion time and ask the Lord how to best apply it. We will continue to talk about this material each week, and we have blogs addressing practical applications at memoirsofabiding.com. We hope you experience God through talking about his word with us. Well, welcome back to the Memoirs of Abiding. My co-host, Ricky Brooks, he's not able to make it this week, and he's going to share his testimony next week. And I think he'll reiterate a good bit of what we're talking about. This week, we are going to talk about abiding through the storm in a preface to the month of October, where we will be talking through numerous testimonies, people who have actually done it, who have abided through the storm and walked through the life that Jesus has called us to in the most turmoil-filled, heartbreaking times. And so we want to focus our time, some of the examples through the Bible of men and women who have sought the Lord in their their times, their times of trouble, their times of difficulty, or even seeing what was coming up. So I think the most important question to start, what does it mean to surrender our circumstances in the middle or at the start of a trial? And a simple way to look at it is to realize that I can't know all the details, including the thoughts of others. If I can't, then I can't be assured my outcome will work how I intended to. So if this is true, then God, who knows all thoughts and has seen everything take place, will be able to cause change that can be assured on his part. So in my believing his word, believing he is a just and good God, and that he loves me, then I can be assured that regardless of my actions, he will always, and I want to stress the word always, he will always do it or be better. So I give up my control of that situation. I give up my sovereignty, the control of my life, and I seek his will in it. I use his word to find a solution or a way through it. I want to look at three different portions of scripture that we see this. The first one's in Luke. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a beautiful contrast between what Jesus is showing and what the disciples are showing. So I want to read it because it's one of the things we want to focus on in this podcast is the word of God as the sense, not what Chris thinks, what Ricky thinks, what anyone else thinks, uh, famous authors who are Christians. But what we want to see is what the Bible says. So when we go to Luke 22, starting in verse 39, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's a really important thing right there. I'm going to stop just for a second and realize that getting ready for the trial or the trauma or the storm that's coming into our life is just as important as the actions during the storm. We've heard it said, fate favors the prepared mind, I think is the the statement, but when it comes to walking this faith out, I think it's really important for us to see that if I wake up in the morning 
I can't be ready for the day unless I prepare myself. I prepare for getting my kids up. I prepare for going to work. I prepare for going to church. In the same way, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the armor of God. Part of that armor is putting on these skill sets that we talk about in abiding. But the most important thing is to pray. So he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping again. But he says specifically sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I think this is a great contrast. If we look at it and if you think about it. Jesus needs and desires something. It's kind of an important thing to figure out what is it that Jesus is needing? Jesus is man. What is he needing? And then look at the disciples and say, what is it they're needing? And we were just going over this, actually, in, in one of the discipleship groups. It's pretty clear that Jesus is, is needing comfort. He knows what's coming up. He knows exactly what's going to occur. He is going to find separation for the first time in all of eternity, separation from the Father. And so in this moment, that is his deepest desire. And he brings that desire to God the Father. And he talks to him and he asks him for strength. Now contrasting that to the disciples, looking at them, we can only really try to interpret based on our own background what the disciples were feeling. But when it says that they, they fell asleep from sorrow, I don't know about you, but I know there's been plenty of times where I have been full of sorrow and it has been exhausting. You know, if, if your child is going through something difficult, if a spouse is going through something horrible, if a parent or a brother or sister or even a best friend, if, if there's someone in your life that's going through something that is just no other better way to say, but just going through hell, going through the worst situations. It is emotionally exhausting for those who love and care for them. And so I think we see that with these disciples. So when I look at this, the thing that I see as a desire with them is this peace, this calmness, maybe this security or comfort. Comfort is probably the biggest one. So they're desiring some sort of comfort. And in order to have that desire met in their sorrow, they know no other way. They just go to sleep. And I've done this earlier in life where it's just so overwhelming that maybe if I just go to sleep, I'll wake up with some more energy and I can do something different. So that's what they kept doing. And Jesus called them out. The important thing in this one is to look at the contrast. When Jesus had a desire, he went to God the Father. When the disciples had a desire for comfort, instead of going to the Father, they went to what their flesh called out, sleep. That was their way of, of seeking that. 
So in this, we see Jesus responding to the, the storm that's coming through prayer and through abiding, surrendering, submitting, living with that dependence on God the Father's plan. I think it's a beautiful example. Another one I had mentioned earlier in one of the first podcasts, I think it was, but Hezekiah. We see Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18. Hezekiah is king of Judah. And while he's in the position of king, he comes to a storm. The storm comes from the nation of Assyria. Assyria comes and they were another nation that was able to conquer most of Asia Minor and continue and spread out. The only place that they developed this difficulty was in Judah. And we know that King Hezekiah was king of Judah. He was threatened. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, all the way through 20, we see this life of Hezekiah. And we see a great example twice, actually, of abiding in the storm. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, he gets a notice from the king of Assyria's prince. The position's name is the Rab Shekeh. If I said that wrong, probably did. But he starts by taunting the Jews who are in the city of Jerusalem. He does this, I think, to instill fear. Fear is a great aid to battle if you can get the other side to express it in great amounts. And he speaks out against the the soldiers on the wall, continues to taunt them and tell them that if they follow their king, King Hezekiah, that they're going to find ruin, destruction. He goes out of it just like it's some sort of Hollywood blockbuster. And it's it's the quotes from all of the Hollywood blockbusters of the, the ancient times. But he goes through, and I think the important thing is King Hezekiah's response. We see that in chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes, or he ripped his clothes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. So the first place he goes, into the house of the Lord or the temple. And he sends some of the counselors in his cabinet, if you will. He sent them out to get Isaiah, who we know is the prophet Isaiah, who wrote the book of Isaiah. They send him to go talk to him. And then he asks for praying. Pray for us. Pray for us. So again, a good response to this is prayer. When you're in the storm, prayer should be the first thing. That is the exact first thing that King Hezekiah did. Well, second thing, right? First thing, he tore his clothes, went into the temple. The second thing, he prayed. He said, hey, go take care of this. Instead of getting, like I said before, and, and I think it was what was what is abiding, part one or part two. But he said, go and, and find Isaiah. And then he asked him to pray. So instead of preparing the city for a battle, instead of getting all the soldiers ready, his first thought was, let's beseech the Lord. So he goes through this prayer, and he has Isaiah pray. He prays. 
there's a whole section of Hezekiah's prayer. It starts in chapter 19, verse 14. And just summarizing it, he takes this letter from the messengers of Assyria and puts it and reads it. Then he puts it on the, the altar before the Lord. And he says this, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear us. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Wow, what an amazing prayer. Because what he's doing is he is acknowledging that he's got nothing. He's not going to be able to stop this. These kings have gone through and laid waste to many other nations. And he calls on the only one who can stop them, the Almighty. So what a great example. The first example in Luke in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have Jesus about to go through a trial that no one on earth could ever even possibly imagine. And he starts it off with seeking the Lord. He goes out into a quiet bit of solitude, not too far from his disciples, but he's still out there and he leaves them for a moment to go pray. So he goes to a place and he prays. In the same way Hezekiah, when he receives this news, he goes to a place and he prays. The last thing I want to talk about is in Acts, Acts 16. In Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas. We know Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee among the Pharisees. And he had a moment with the Lord that changed his life. And Silas had followed Paul around in his ministry. And so we have in chapter 16, they had started preaching the gospel and they were not welcomed because they had spoken to this little girl who had a demon in her and they rebuked the demon. It left her and they were in a bit of trouble because the owners of this particular slave girl were making a lot of money so they stir up trouble the crowd attacks and what happens paul and silas are stripped and beaten with rods it says after they had been severely flogged they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully that's a trial right there that's a storm to be beaten severely beaten the Bible calls it out, and then thrown into the prison to which the guards put them in an inner cell and fasten their feet into stocks. So I can only think of what I, I might do in that situation if I respond in the flesh. I mean, there's, there's probably tears, there's probably anger, there's probably a bunch of emotions that go through you, not to mention the pain that you're feeling, the exhaustion from being beaten, sleep a lot like the disciples did in the garden. But here we see a different approach. Here we don't see the sorrow or the pain resulting in sleep. Listen in on what chapter 16, verse 25 says. About midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. We can continue on there, but I'll let you read the story more. It's an amazing account because Paul and Silas, for all of our human wisdom, were stuck there. There was no way out of there. There was no hope. They were beaten. They were flogged. They were under the dominion of the jailer and the guards. And understanding this, they responded in the way that they had learned, which was through prayer and through surrendering and submitting in that moment. So in contrast to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, who responded to this turmoil, this trauma, with sleep, with just almost giving up. Paul and Silas, we see on the other end, who responded in the same way that Jesus had modeled, and they went to God in prayer. They went to God singing hymns, and the effect of it was incredible. It changed not only their circumstance, but it changed the lives of others around them. So their response through prayer and praise of God impacted those around them. So there's some examples of putting into practice this abiding lifestyle. We go to God when it gets tough. We go to God when it starts getting difficult. I've heard the phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get on their knees and pray. I think it's a really key act of any Christian to be able to do that, to be able to run to the Lord in that. When we read through the Psalms, that's exactly what they're describing. Psalm 27, hide not that face far from me, put not thy servant away in anger, for thou hast been my help. Or even earlier in the Psalm where he says, you've hidden me in the secret, secret of your tabernacle. We see it in other Psalms that he is our fortress. He is our strong fortress. He is our refuge. In verse 20 or in chapter 23 of the Psalms, we see that the the Lord leads us alongside the still waters. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. I wonder how many times in our own lives, if we could just understand that in the moment, how the circumstance would change. And the time to try to figure it out isn't in the middle of the circumstance. That's why abiding is a lifestyle. Abiding is each day. Each day I wake up, I choose to surrender that day to the Lord. And each decision I make after that, is a cascading effect of actions of dependency on him, actions of submitting and submission, surrender, of requesting and desiring to be transformed by God's word and God's word alone. And when we do that each and every day, then when the storms come, our response is different. We don't respond in anxiety and fear or depression or We don't respond in our flesh in anger, self-righteousness. 
Those things don't occur because we have already surrendered it. So when the storms come and we'll, we'll listen to the testimonies of, I think there's four or five weeks in October. We'll have, we'll have five different testimonies through this, but we'll see that when those difficulties come, it wasn't because they chose in the middle of that. It was because they chose before the trial ever came to surrender to the Lord. So in these three examples, what do they show us about how to respond in the middle of the storm? Well, seeking God through it and not always running to humans is a big part. Showing that a body of believers encouraging and praying with you is also beneficial. Keeping God's word and what he says. Our first response should be to take the storm and lay it on the altar like Hezekiah did. Realizing in our strength, we can't stop the events from taking place. I can't stop cancer from taking someone important in my life. I can't stop an addiction from catching hold on one of my children when they're older I can't stop a bully in my children's school. I can't stop some horrible circumstance in a best friend's life. Maybe they're going through a divorce or they just lost their spouse. Maybe they lost a child. I can't stop all of those. And I know that. But sometimes our flesh wants to take control and try to make it as safe as possible. It goes back to what we said at the beginning. But if we don't know all the circumstances, if we don't know what's coming up, then how can our flesh truly understand and make the right choice? It can't. So we can't in any way, shape, or form be the ones deciding things and hope that it works out in the best possible manner. So we've got to have our first response to take these things and lay it on the altar, realizing that our strength, isn't what's going to stop it, that it's his strength. We can't stop the armies from coming against us. Even Hezekiah, as he had followed the Lord, didn't stop the army from coming up against him. Many times these armies are much bigger than us, much stronger than us. We can't stop from being persecuted about our faith to Christ. Nowadays, there's some people that are being persecuted in schools, being persecuted in the medical field being persecuted at a workplace or in their own business, wherever it is, we can't stop those things from occurring. We can always stop ourselves from trying to take control, and we can stop ourselves from using our own strength to try to affect the change. But never will we find that our own strength is sufficient. Jesus even says in himself, he says that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. So when we display our weakness to him, when we show him the vulnerability that, yes, Lord, I can't do this. Then we start to see the change take place. That's when the word of God is able to transform us. That's that humble and contrite spirit. And I think some of you are probably thinking as you listen to this, yeah, that's easy to say, but do you live it? Well, you can. And that's what I'm excited about October coming and showing us. I'll share my own testimony when, when the time comes, but even just this week, 
in the midst of turmoil and chaos in my kids' lives and, and heartbreak in my own, instead of turning it on myself or on others or getting angry at the circumstances, I'm sure there is a bit of, of righteous anger in there, but my first response was to cry out to the Lord, was to just sit down and express it to him as if he's sitting right next to me as a, as a counselor might, or as a teacher, a psychologist, psychiatrist, as a mentor might, as a best friend might, as a brother or sister. I don't have one, but I can imagine it might be that way. And just talking to him and telling him about the hurts, telling him how bad it hurts. He knows, but all the more relationship building is occurring when I can express that to him. There's a certain level of trust that's built when I open up and I'm vulnerable to another person, even more so to the Lord, because I know that he's never going to take that and use that against me. So as I become more vulnerable to the Lord, I trust him more. As I trust him more, my faith grows. My faith grows in the hope that I have in him. My hope grows because I've seen that he's already sustained me in the smaller things so I can hope in the bigger things. As my hope goes up, my faith also increases. As my faith and my trust increase, that's when I look at these trials that would have put me under the bed or would have put me in a deep sorrow and possibly going to sleep just like the disciples did. Instead, I respond differently. Instead, I respond on my knees. Maybe I curl up in a ball on my living room floor and just cry, cry out to the Lord. Or maybe, maybe I go for a run and I just express to the Lord all of my frustration. But I take it like King Hezekiah did. I take it to him. Or as Paul and Silas did, I take it to prayer. I take it to hymns. Or as Jesus did, take it straight to the God the Father and express that, yes, Lord, I admit that I, I would like something else to happen, but not my will but yours. So what's the most important action we can do in order to be in the right position to abide through the storm? Well, I think the most important thing we've seen is prayer. Pray with the Lord daily. Prayer doesn't have to be like we hear on Sunday mornings. Prayer doesn't have to be like what we do at the table, maybe right before bed. Prayer can simply be talking to the Lord. I know sometimes when I walk between offices at work or as I'm driving, I like to tell the Lord about my day, almost like you would for a spouse. And I tell him about the day and then I tell him about my thoughts about those particular things that happened. I tell him about the things that frustrated me, the things that made me laugh, the things that make me cry, the things that make me angry. I like to tell him about all those things. And then sometimes I feel led to pray on some of those specific items. Sometimes I don't. And by pray, I mean intercessory prayer. Lord, I pray against this. I pray that you'll heal this. I pray that you'll remove this from this person's life or from my own life, right? Intercessory prayer, but or petitionary prayer if it's for me. But sometimes my prayer time is just talking with him. Just being present in him. The second thing we can do, though, is reading his word. And finding our identity in it. Identity is so big. And Ricky made a point, And I think we'll come back to identity. 
for a whole month we might spend on it. But identity is simply who am I? Answering that question, who am I? And if we don't know who we are, then we don't know who to run to. If I don't know who I am, then it's chaos. And when the storm comes, Satan can easily split me off. But when I know who I am, I know what I have. I know that I'm a child of God. I know that I'm a blood-bought, born-again child of God. And those five miracles that, that Ricky mentioned the other day, we've got justified. I am justified. Whatever happens, I'm now made right with God. I'm adopted. He has brought me into his kingdom. I am now part of the family of Abraham through faith, as he spoke of in Romans 3 through Paul. I know that I'm also redeemed, that all of my sins, all of my wrongdoings have been paid for by Christ. I know that I am reconciled with God, whereas I used to be an enemy of God. Now I'm a friend of God. Now I'm a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. And lastly, and I think is, is one of the biggest miracles is I'm now regenerated. He gave me a spirit where there wasn't one. Those five miracles are part of my identity. It's who I am. When I know that, then I know because I'm a friend of God that he is there with me. So through the storm, I can call on him. I know that. I know that he is there with me. As I sit in my identity in Christ, that I find that each and every day, then I find these storms that come. It allows me, it gives me an opportunity to go to God and say, Lord, my heart hurts. I cry out to you because of what's happening to my kids. I cry out to you because of what's happening to me. I cry out to you because of what's happening in my church or in my city, to my friends, to my family. I cry out to you, Lord, because you can do it. And when we do that, we do it in faith. Just like what I talked about before is the hope and the faith that's in it. As we step into that identity, then we can know for certain that God is there with us. We may not be certain that he's going to take something away or that he'll restore something as we had prayed. Because there may be a different plan that he has. Just as Paul said, when he's talking about the thorn in his side, three times I had prayed for God to remove it. But what did it do? It brought about a dependence on God. Now Paul realized that this thorn in his side just drew, drew him in to God more. And so sometimes we find that to be the case. But when my identity is in Christ, then when that thorn continues in my life, it just draws me closer to him, closer and closer to him until that thorn, even though it's still there, it's not my identity. My identity could be in a trauma that happened. I'm a divorcee. My trauma could have been a loss of a child. And that's where I find it. It could be a childhood abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, sexual. Any of those could be who I I identify as. I could be 
confused in my own right on who I am. Maybe I, I don't even identify with the gender, the sex that I was born with. It could be that I find my identity in pleasing people. It could be that it's it's tied up in what I'm able to do with my own hands. When I find my identity in those temporary things, though, I have no chance in the storm. I'm like a leaf being tossed in the wind in the middle of a storm. It stands no chance. But when I'm rooted in Christ, when my identity is in something that can never change, and he's promised that it will never change, then in the storm, I'm anchored to a solid foundation. So when the waves start blowing, smashing against me, I may bend, but I don't break. So identity comes from reading his word. Prayer and reading his word, being transformed by his word. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The only way to renew our minds in the way that Paul is talking about is through the word of God. There's no self-help books. There's no podcast that can do it. This podcast can't influence you that way. This podcast can bring about an awareness that drives you to your knees and ask God for that. Any podcast can pique your interest in the word of God, but ultimately none of those will change your life. The change comes from the Holy Spirit and it comes through reading his word. So as we walk through this, as we answered a few of these questions, what does it mean to surrender our circumstances in the middle of a trial? What are some skills that we can put into place? We looked at those through King Hezekiah, through Jesus, and through Paul and Silas. And then what do those examples show us about how to respond in the middle of a trial? And finally, the most important actions that we can do. Praying, reading his word for transformation, and finding our identity in Christ. In these things... When we are rooted in those in our life, that's when we truly see the storms blowing by. The hurricane blows over, but doesn't destroy us. It doesn't shake us to our roots. So I hope this week that you can ask the Lord to show you how to do that, to make that a reality in your life. And I, I thank you. I thank you for listening in and, and being faithful and true to this podcast. And, and I really hope that the Lord is able to move in your life about some of these topics. Maybe you can share them with a friend and just talk about it with you and him, or maybe just sit down with the Lord in it. Just want you all to know that you're loved, supported. And so as we end every podcast, we want to end with an important scripture that reminds us to abide in him. So in John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So as you walk through this week, we encourage you to review the scriptures and themes we talk about and ask the Holy Spirit to team up with you to bring this information to life personally in your own walk. Thank you for listening and God bless.